Mending a broken heart. It's big business in our world, isn't it? Songs, poems, promises. Uh, there's a lot of broken hearts out there, sadly. Um, unfulfilled desires. Failure to live up to expectations. All of us have dealt with it. Maybe still dealing with it. And I have the cure for it all. Actually, not me. But God does, and there is a solid cure. I know it because I've used it. Um, And, you know, and you can, any of us can be a part of that. Any human being can find that ability. Um, But how do people normally try to kill the pain that comes from broken hearts and uh, unfulfilled desires, loss, and the pain that comes from, you know, you had expectations upon you. All of us know that we haven't lived up to them. And either, how do people try and kill that pain? Like uh, substances, drugs, alcohol, sex. Uh, they try and manage it in different ways. And uh, and so we'll see today how that actually, right here in Matthew, is the, the surefire cure for it all. So we will start in Matthew 1. Matthew 1 1. And let's open up in prayer. Let's be grateful and thankful for God's mercy uh, in that He has given us His Word in this wonderful gospel at the start of our New Testament to uh, open up our hearts to the truth of our Lord, His beginnings, His origin, and uh, the whole plan for which He came, which is in this gospel. So, with uh, reverence and humility, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have blessed us with the truth that comes from the, the, the Bible. Uh, we thank you that you've preserved it. Uh, you've provided for us, Father, through the Holy Spirit, the ability to comprehend and see to each of us on our own, be able to see your word. Uh, if there were nobody to teach us, we could see it. You would provide it for us. Of course, you do provide the teachers. And we're grateful. We're grateful for your son and his, uh, the true sacrifice that has enabled us to be with you and see you and to call ourselves your children. So we ask, Father, that through your spirit, our hearts would be enlightened in the passages we'll look at today to see our need of you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so uh, many view Matthew 1 and 2, the first two chapters, as myth. And uh, a myth is an uh, untrue discourse. I didn't make a slide of it, did I? No. But 
we have kind of, I think all of us know what a myth is. Uh, I did a little research until I got extremely bored with, you know, you can discern between a myth and a fable and folklore and folk tale and fairy tale and all kinds of other stuff. And people spend a lot of time looking into that. I read a couple pages of that and I was like, enough. Um, doesn't excite me at all. But I, we all kind of know what it is. Uh, a myth can be based on truths. It can be completely made up. But it, generally it is based on truth, some kind of truth. And that it's an effort to explain something that is either natural or social that we don't have a real explanation for. So uh, oftentimes they come from origins. You know, how did we all start? And so because we don't know and we're curious about that and it makes us uneasy not to know, so we come up with myths. And I, for me, I think it's a way of calming or comforting the soul. We have these unknowable realities. So, for instance, in modern times, uh, we have discovered through a lot of our scientific discovery how complicated the universe really is. And, uh, you know, we, it's kind of like the cell, you know, when we first were able to see that in, uh, in living tissue there are cells. And so we saw them as little circles, you know, but we didn't have our microscopes weren't powerful enough to see what was inside the little circles. So we just thought, you know, everything's made up of these little circles, no big deal. But then we looked inside the circles and there's all kinds of stuff going on in there. And then we looked even deeper and we're like, holy cow, there's... Not only a whole bunch of stuff, but a whole bunch of complex stuff, far too complex for any um, you know, explanation that we had of our origin outside of God. <clears throat> so if there's no God, and we're going to say, well, all of this came together randomly, there's a you know, big bang and then everything just kind of spread out and all of these little bits and pieces that exploded have to come together in a way that makes a living cell we find out that the odds against that are truly astronomical. So not just biology, but chemistry. Uh, the fact that atoms uh, would come together or, or protons and neutrons in a nucleus and the things that make up protons and neutrons and all of that stuff would come together in the exact same manner that we see it now by which chemistry would actually work the way it does. We're not talking about life at all. Just that like there would be things like carbon and oxygen and stuff like that. So uh, we found out it's far too complex. So what we did was we created a myth that there are an infinite number of universes out there somewhere and we're the lucky one. Because the odds of it all happening the way that it did would have to be infinite. And so the only way to explain it is if there are other universes out there where it went wrong and we're the lucky one, one out of, not a, one out of a million, but one out of an infinite number. Well, you know, why do people, you know, any scientist that comes up with that should say, um, that's stupid. Because we don't have evidence, a farthing of evidence concerning one other universe, never mind an infinite number. <clears throat> so we have myths. Myths, we have them all today, too. They're not any different. But uh, just to have a little fun, first there's this guy, the guy with the lightning bolt. That's Zeus. 
Uh, there's plenty of uh, there were plenty of great paintings of him that were pretty uh, grotesque that I almost used, but I did not because Cronus, his father, was told uh, the prophecy was given to him that one of his children was going to dethrone him. So Cronus decided to eat all his babies, and he did. He ate them up, and uh, his wife was pretty um, upset with that. And uh, she hid away one of the sons, who was Zeus. They hid, hid him on Crete. And when Zeus became mature enough, uh, he was given the gift of the lightning bolt because he set free some uh, the Cyclops guy, uh, who was one of the Titans. And so there was the war against the Titans, of which Zeus just barely won. And then Mount Olympus was born. Uh, it's a really fun story. Uh, but... <clears throat> And there's an awesome painting done, done by some Renaissance uh, painters. There's a few of them of Cronus eating his babies. I don't, yeah, I mean, it must at the time it was probably like so people would want to see that. You know, you didn't normally see that. So it would become a popular painting, like a car wreck, I guess, you know, what people want to look at. Uh, so, you know, why do I bring that up? Because it's about origins. You know, the, people want to know, well, where did it all come from? And that's important for us because Matthew 1 and 2 is about origins. There's uh, one of my favorites, Romulus and Remus. Uh, they may have actually been real people, it turns out. I, I found out that they might actually have been something that they were. Uh, Romulus and Remus were, uh, but according to myth, uh, Romulus is the founder of Rome. Uh, Remus was his twin brother. Romulus killed him killed Remus, uh, but the two of them were hid away by their mother. Their father was Mars, the god of war, and their, one of the kings saw these two guys as a threat to the throne, so he sought to kill them. Mom hid them by a river, which is very Moses-esque, just like Moses, right? Hid them, in the, not in a basket, but by a river. And the god of the Tiber River, river where, they were, uh, where they lived, Saved them, and they're famously suckled by a she-wolf, of which this is a famous uh, art. Uh, so anyway, um, why do we have these? Well, it's because of origins. Uh, so in our Matthew, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and I put up the English Standard Version. You can read your New American Standard if that's what you have. It says the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Uh, <clears throat> but the, the first word in Matthew is biblos. And biblos is the Greek word for book. Um, so uh, the uh, genealogy, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ or yeah, of genealogy of the Messiah, which actually I would prefer that to be Messiah, not Christ. It's in, uh, I can't remember if the Greek has Jesus, Jesus in there. But anyway, uh, so this mimics Genesis because that's what the word is. It's the word Genesis. Uh, but here we have the, it's a, you know, it is the word Genesis and it's the book of Genesis. But it's the book of Genesis, or the generations, or the genealogy of Christ Jesus. So, in <coughs> in a way, <coughs> you know, though the Matthew one and two is counted as a myth by many, even amongst Christians, sadly, 
that it's counted. Yes, indeed. It's, uh, I, you know, now going to university now, I'm exposed to this, and it's, it's way more rampant than I thought it was. Like you hear about it, yeah, there's a lot of liberal theology out there. There is a lot of liberal theology out there. And uh, <clears throat> so if this, this pattern, which you, you don't think Matthew has this in mind, well, of course he does. I mean, in the Septuagint, it's word for word the same, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is what Matthew had. And uh, so <clears throat> the, book of the, gen- the book of generations, so the question becomes, is Matthew 1 and 2 a new Genesis? Well, of course, you have to be careful. You know, so if you, some would be so convinced that Matthew was a new Genesis that they would throw out the old Genesis. And plenty of people have done that as well, where they don't think that Old Testament has anything in it for us anymore, which is just ridiculous. Uh, but uh, anyway, that's not at all what we believe. But the fact that there's a new humanity is quite clear. Who's been born of a virgin yet? There isn't a lot of that. There's none of that. And so there's, a, it, there's definitely a new humanity here. It is God in the flesh. But we find out from the rest of the New Testament that all those who are in Christ are a new humanity. That we've been crucified with Christ. And that we've been resurrected with Christ, even though we haven't died yet. And so there's a newness here that actually applies to us in the church, of which we are the beneficiaries. And uh, we're no longer in Adam. We're in Christ. All believers in this age are in Christ, no longer in Adam. And this is super clear in the New Testament, especially Romans 5 and many other passages. So, you know, what is Genesis? Is the beginning uh, God creates, and then on the sixth day, he creates mankind, and uh, man and woman made in his image, and off we go, uh, and all everything happens from there. Um, and now there's a new humanity, and so if there's a new humanity, there's a new searching. Um, you know, what are we to pursue? Are we to pursue, and now when I say pursue the old, I don't mean pursue sin, but, well, we'll see what I mean actually coming up. So, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. <coughs> Excuse me. So, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ. And this is an indication that if they are, then they are a new creature. And the this is not a remodeled creature. This uh, the Greek here used is means brand new, or created by God in Christ as brand new. And notice the old things have passed away. <coughs> Excuse me. And then, so what are those old things that have passed away? That would be something that we should answer and have an answer for for ourselves. You know what old things have passed away. Uh, so the um, therefore, if there's a new creature and new things have come, then we're pursuing not the old things but the new things. And that I liken to the Magi. This new origin demands a new search, and the Magi are searching in a way that no one has ever searched before. 
plenty of people have followed stars, you know, people on the sea who map their direction by the stars, sailors, you know, people who are <clears throat> need to head off in a certain direction and, you know, they know how to tell direction by the stars. They have certainly done this. But no one has followed a star to a king before and no one has had a star stand right over the place where that king was. And so let's look at Matthew 2.9. And I will try and clear my throat. Matthew 2.9. My throat won't get clear for like 45 minutes and that'll be clear as a bell. After hearing the king, they went there, King Herod, of course, they went their way. These are the magi and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. <coughs> now, I, you know, I, I can't pass over it too quickly here. This star standing over the place where the child was. I mean, this is something um, that has is brand new. I, I, I think it's marvelous that we don't know what this is. You know, on Sunday, we compared it to the cloud that led Israel through the wilderness, which, of all things in the Bible, it's the thing that's most like it, for sure. Uh, and that cloud was the glory of God, and this star has led them to the glory of God. So I think there's some very solid similarities there. But in re reality, this is something that has we don't know what it is, even though Matthew calls it a star. And, but neither did the world know who Christ was, and we're on a journey of finding out who Christ is. I mean, we believed upon him, and for us here in this room, we've studied him for a great many years, and learned about him, and walked with him, and worshipped him. But, <clears throat> you know, in truly discovering who he is, the Son of God that become a man, the God-man, is uh, we've got a long way to go, all of us do. So there's a newness to this, which, of course, this sounds like a myth, doesn't it? I mean, it, this has got myth written all over it. It's about a birth, it's about origins, and it's uh, completely irregular. I mean, these magi are mysterious. We don't really know where they're from. Uh, they're... <clears throat> Well, we know they're from the east, but we don't know where. They could be Babylonians. They could be Persians. They could be Arabians. We're not really sure. Uh, there's the birth of through a virgin. There's just uh, angels coming to talking to people in their dreams um, and, and uh, stating very old, old prophecies. And there's a lot of stuff here that looks like a myth. But, you know, where do myths come from? Again, they come from certain realities. And if the great stories, all the great stories have what this story has, um, maybe, I wouldn't say maybe, I would say for sure that the great stories are stealing or borrowing from the real story. Which here you've got, you've got danger, you've got conflict, uh, you've got deliverance. You've got like uh, <clears throat> evil and good, light and darkness. All the great stories have what is here. And you've got vindication at the end because Herod dies. And, but there's also great misery and tragedy in the, the murder of the children in Bethlehem. 
It's all here, and uh, I think this this is the reality of which all other stories borrow. So in verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country in another way. And I've read some things that people have pulled out from, you know, they're leaving in a different way, which, you know, it's it's very good stuff and it has great application, although <coughs> we'll get to that. <coughs> so the Magi were looking for something new, obviously, and they found him. They fell to the ground and worshipped a child. That is new. Right? That's not that. I mean, sure, it could happen in a myth, yeah. But this is the reality here of a group of people who are no idiots. Um, they're falling down to worship a child, and they're calling that child king, and uh, not just any king, king of the Jews. Notice that's what they they said to Herod. Where is the child that would be born king of the Jews? And that. You know, that's not just any king. That's Messiah to the Jews. So here is someone that these Gentiles, have they've found him, and they fall down and worship him as, you know, as the Messiah, which is absolutely strange. So seeking for someone new, right? Seeking for someone new. It demands a new search. What did Israel seek before Christ came. One of the things that they sought was the law. I mean, that's what you did. I mean, you had to keep the law. So they were given commandments to keep the law. And we, however, we do keep the moral commands of the law. It's not like we're because we're in the church and no longer under the law. I always say use adultery, but that's a good one to use. Is that all of a sudden adultery is not okay, nor is lying or murder or any of the others, right? So uh, we're under the moral law, ethical law, and in fact we keep the law like Christ would in terms of the ethics and the morality of the law. But we don't seek the law. See, when you have the, the perfect in your hands, when you have Christ, the giver of the law, the origin of the law, and then if you sought the law instead of him... Now, now there's no perfect analogy, but one of the things I came up with is that say you took a long trip and you followed a map, and when you finally got to your destination, you just kept looking at the map. Uh, Say you took a trip to the Grand Canyon, and when you got there, instead of looking at the Grand Canyon, you never looked at it. You just looked at the map because you're so fascinated by the map. Like, what an idiot, right? There's... We need the map to get there, just like we need the commandments to get there. But the the commandments, the doctrines, the truths in the scripture that we study are all designed to get us to him, to see him, to behold him, Jesus Christ. So if you're in the pursuit of love, you've gotten it wrong. You're in the pursuit of him. Along the way, you will find out what love is. Now, we would study the doctrine of love. We have. 
But the, in studying that doctrine, the, the love itself is not our end goal. Our end goal is Christ. And so what we're learning of is him, and we're after him. And as we go along that path, all those things are things that we're going to find. So skip ahead. You can, we're going to come back to Matthew. Go to Romans 7. Romans 7, 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through this body of Christ. So notice this, my brethren, you were also made to die to the law through the body of Christ. So we're not pursuing the law. In fact, we died to it. So that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were roused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound. And here Paul says that we were bound to it in marriage. So that we serve in newness of spirit and not in oldness of the letter. So you see, we're not pursuing the law anymore. We're not even, uh, it's not our master. But at the same time, we're not doing things that are sinful. Uh, So as, as the law would instruct us in a way of morality, in an ethical way, we're quite absolutely willing to follow all of that. But we're not after the law itself. Because if you were a do-gooder and you had no relationship with Christ, well, I mean, that's what you get. As Christ would say, you have your reward in full. Um, Yeah, you want to be a do-gooder, but that's not the whole purpose of this. The whole purpose of this is to follow Christ and to find him. And as you discover him, you're going to do the things that he does. And that's actually the only way to find him. So we're, as a new creation, we're no longer in the pursuit of the law. We're in the pursuit of the one who is alive. And so go to Matthew 16. Now, this often becomes, it becomes hard to unravel because we say, well, all right, we're dead to the law, then why am I keeping any of it? But we have to understand that the law was uh, a guide to people who were not living at the time of the birth of, or were living at the time before the birth of Christ. So they were not living uh, in a time of which there was a fulfillment of the justice of God. They weren't living at a time where there was a fulfillment of the, uh, the, the need, the judicial need of God that demanded a sacrifice on behalf of sin. That hadn't happened yet. So there, before Christ, the cross hasn't come, the atonement hasn't happened. And so their law, which they're pursuing, which none of them can keep fully, is leading them like a tutor. That's how Paul describes it, is that it's a tutor that is leading them to Christ. And then when Christ comes 
really would say John the Baptist comes before Christ and says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then there's the kingdom of God standing on two feet right in front of you. And that is the one now that you are bound to. And so we're, the pursuit of the law was the pursuit of things that God had given prior to the coming of Christ. And then those things which are fulfilled in him are not things that we throw out. They're things that we uh, consider as, I say, uh, not a part of the fullness. You know, in other words, the fullness is him and not exactly what we do. And so when we are actually in pursuit of Christ, we're doing the things that keep us with him, following him, uh, fellowshipping with him. And so the our end goal is not to say, well, look, I kept that law today. I say, no, I stood with Christ today. And because I stood with him, I kept that law. And it's just, it sounds almost like it's a subtle difference, but it, it's a world of difference, really. Because it's it's... It's actually being an identity and a whole different creature. Whereas, you know, for instance, say like a, you know, a child could do good things and not know the whole reason why they do them. In other words, they do them because their parents tell them to and they're going to get punished if they don't. So they do it. But when you do those same things because you understand that they're right and they're good, and you know the one who created those laws. And you're with the creator of those laws. It becomes far more, it becomes a much higher thing than just keeping rules. Even though you're keeping the rules. So we try and wrap our minds around it. And it, it's, it's amazing to me how God is, um, and wonderful to me, that God has given us certain things that, you know, to truly unravel them is going to take a long time. And that's what God wants from us, is a commitment of our lives. You know, we're not going to figure everything out in a short period of time. And that's okay. So, we keep the moral and ethical demands of the law like Christ did. But it's him that we follow. It's him that we're after. If I say, well, I've neglected the law and I follow Christ. You're not following him. That's not his path. His path wasn't the neglect of the law. He's the creator of the law. Right? So our motivation becomes completely different here. But though we're doing the same things, actually much better. <clears throat> so look at Matthew 16, 24. And Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me. Now again, the whole reason we're talking about this is a new origin, a new birth, a new origin demands a new search. We're not searching the way that they did in the Old Testament. We're not, and it's not completely different. We must understand that. It's not night and day. It's just not the same thing. We're, we're pursuing now the God-man. We're pursuing his life, how he lived it how he did things, and who he is. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And the Greek word here for life is suke. It's, it's actually the word for soul, which is very much it meant to the Greeks' life as well. So when you say, when he says here, whoever loses his life, he means loses his soul. Of course, he's talking here about not giving up your life as a martyr, but as your soul life, meaning within yourself what you consider to be life indeed, as Christ would say. You know, what, what do you live for? And again, I could say, I live to keep the law. And you could keep it better than most people. And because you're not pursuing Christ, you're more of a self-righteous prig who's more of a bother than anything. Like you keep the law, but you judge those who don't. Are you following Christ or are you following a law? Right? You're following a law. <laughs> and although in some ways that's good, in other ways it's truly deceptive to you. You're not following the man. And the man has it all. The God-man. So whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake doesn't mean martyrdom. It means your will, your desires, what you long for is what he longs for. And then he says if you do that, you'll find it. You find me, you find life. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Now here, suke is translated soul, right? which is fine. You know, it fits fine. But I mean, again here, it's the same word that's life. If you forfeit, in other words, if you forfeit your life and you got the whole world because of it. You know, some guy, some guy just came out with a book. What, are they, what did he call it? The controligarchs or something like that. And you know what oligarchy is? Is um, when a kingdom is ruled by a very small... Um, that's actually the Greek word oligae means small. So it's being ruled by a small number of people. And somebody just recently came out with a book about how this small group of people are trying to run the world uh, and you know make us all eat bugs and drive electric cars and do all this stuff, right? And... But what's common about them all is they're multi-billionaires. So, okay, they have all this money. Say they get all this power. Say that, you know, the next time you go to Safeway, the only thing on the meat aisle are, is a bunch of cockroach-made stuff. And that's all you got, all right? I'd become a vegetarian probably, but maybe that's what they want. I don't know what they want. But... <clears throat> it seems to me that they're in the pursuit of gaining the world. And let's say they do it. I'll say, bravo, good for you. But what will they have? As Christ says here, you're going to forfeit your life. Do you understand what you're giving up? And yet, for, for us, we could look at that group and say, oh, yeah, I can't wait for God to get them. But take that finger and point it at yourself because how much in our soul, what portion of our soul is still married or longing for that worldly, prideful, fleshly thing? We died to that. And that's what Christ is saying here. I'm a new creation. 
and I've given you my life. It's a whole new life. That's why the greatest of you is not the multi-billionaire who finally got control of the world, which there is going to be one who finally does that, right? We, we learned about him not long ago. The beast. The beast. The Antichrist. He's going to pull it off. He'll be a multi, multi, multi-billionaire. Sure he will. But what will it profit a man? And then he says, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, and, and it's from that line where people have come up with the story of, you know, you, you make a deal with Satan and you give him your soul and he gives you the world. Which is a great story. I mean, it's not real. Nobody can, Satan has no power to do that. But at least as far as I know, he doesn't have the power to do that. But, um, you know, it's a great way to depict this. You're going to hand over your soul for what? A few years of what? I don't know what you get. You get a bunch of stuff and you get a bunch of power. Okay, now what do you got? You're still going to be in trouble here in your, in your heart. So we open up with a conditional statement. It's a general statement. If anybody wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. That is a, 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 that is a statement of all time. If you want to come after me, you can't come after you. Right? You can't be chasing you and chasing me at the same time. You can't serve two masters. But notice how he says, take up his cross. You know, and I, I marvel at this because it is actually the word cross, staros, in the, in the Greek, storos, I think it is, and, and auto, and which is the Greek preposition that means it's possessive, it's yours. So it's his cross. This is your cross. Put your name in there. There's a cross with your name on it, and you're the one who has to bear it. You're not bearing his cross. You're bearing your cross. And therefore, we ask, well, what does the cross mean? And so, you know, there's a lot of explanations for that. But it is, for me, the simplest is the best. And what is the cross but an instrument of death? That's what it is. It's what it always was. You know, now we have it as a depiction. It turns out we really don't have one here. But uh, I don't know why I'm looking around. There's the little one is over there. But, um, yeah, it's fine. Maybe we should put one up. But um, when you put it on the wall, right, now it's got people, you wear it on your keychain. I'm nothing wrong with that. Not that my opinion matters. But the cross has become this symbol for Christianity, and therefore it's become kind of, um, well, not what it was. Because it is an instrument of torture and death. It is an ugly thing. And we've kind of made it, we've marketed it as a, as a kind of a nice thing. But the cross is a horrible thing. So when he says, pick up your cross, what he's saying to us here is that there's a truth that you have been killed. You have been crucified. And you must always live with that in mind. Now, And I say, I want to pursue that. You died. You can, dead, dead people can't do that. Uh, I, I, <laughs> as soon as I, there's a lot of I's in your language or in your thinking. Of it, no, I died. 
It's the central letter in the word pride, right? P-I, right? I, 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 no, no, no. Yeah, none of us are going to be free from this completely, but so there's a couple things here, too, that help us to understand. Deny himself and take up are both imperatives. They are commands, but they're arrest. Now, an arrest is, uh, can mean a point of time or it can mean something like a past tense. It's trickier than us, what we have in English, but it's, it's a point of time in the past that I said I'm going to deny myself and pick up something. And what I'm picking up is my crucifixion. So it's an odd thing. It's actually a very odd image. We know why Christ had to carry his cross, because they forced him to. But for us to carry ours is to truly carry with you the fact that you're a crucified human being. And that means that my old life, like I never forget, that cross is right here. Tearing up my back and burdening my shoulder. That's my old life. In fact, it says to us that our struggle with our flesh is going to be a burden. And that's okay. You know, your experience is probably a lot like mine, where if you have some momentum in, in your spiritual life and things just... Cylinders are firing in good timing. Spiritual cylinders and everything just... Even not that circumstances are going great, but that you're, you know your heart's good; it's in a good place. But then temptation comes; it always comes and drags you down. Even if you stand up to it, it's a burden. If you give into it, it's a worse burden. That you're tempted; it's burdensome. Don't think don't think that you know the Christianity is meant to be just a breeze. It's a a, a, a walk uh, of uh, on a smooth path. Christ said, I will set for you smooth paths, but there's going to be testing along the way. It does get difficult. So an arist imperative, and that means a past decision. Take up, deny and take up or arist. It means a past decision. But obviously, in, in my estimation, I know, I, my Greek books have seemed to have an easy time picking out different types of aorists that are, well, this one's, you know, an iterative and this one's a gnomic and all of these things that you don't care about. And actually, I, and I've tried to learn, but I don't know how they come up with it. I, I need more years of Greek. But it just seems to me in this case that often I'm going to forget that I need to deny myself. Because I fall for temptation. And that's my flesh saying, you know what, Joe, it's okay for you to want this and to have this. And I say, you know what, flesh, you're right. And, uh, and that's, I fell for it. And then I have to remind myself. So I, I, in my estimation, we're picking up this cross frequently. I think we do it often. Because I think in our own hearts we set it down. And that's when we think the flesh is really alive. Or my old my old self is alive, but it ain't. It ain't. It never. It will never be again. So, whether I'm right on that, I don't know. But I think it is that we are often. But the follow me part is a present tense, and it's also an imperative. It's a command. I command you to pick it up. Sorry, I command you to deny yourself. I command you to pick it up 
and I command you to follow me. And it makes sense that follow is a present tense. A present tense means continuous. And so this continuous is a lifestyle. So let's take it one day at a time. If today you have, by faith, reckoned your old life crucified, and you have denied that life, that's the old life, you've denied it. This doesn't mean deny yourself of all comforts. That's asceticism. It means that you've denied your flesh. You've denied the desire of sin, and you have followed the Lord as a, in a continuous way. And the reason why you followed him is because you truly acknowledged your old life to be dead. When temptation comes to the dead, what do they, they can't do anything. And so that's what this is. Pick up your cross and follow. The Magi followed a strange thing. Star, whatever it was, they followed it to Jerusalem and then they followed it to Bethlehem until it stood over the house or whatever it was, the place where Jesus was. And they rejoiced with joy exceedingly great. Four words Matthew used for the joy that the Magi had when that star finally stopped at the place that they wanted to be. They rejoiced with joy exceedingly great. And you and I have this one in us. Right? We should be happy a lot. Probably a lot more than we are. So there's only one to follow, right? Just like the cloud in the wilderness. There's only one to follow. And he is the one that we must follow. When we follow, we find out that he's not a myth. Now, we know this isn't a myth because, well, we believe the word of God to be inspired and inerrant. So we read it in Matthew. We accept it wholeheartedly. But we also know this because the manifestations of Christ in us are as tangible as anything. Faith. Have you used it? Have you experienced it? Of course you have. You've been experiencing it for years. Um, does it feel real to you? How about truth? You've used it, experienced it, seen it. You've seen it in comparison to lies. How about love? God's love. You've used it. You've seen it. Joy? Peace? Should I go on? Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness? Temperance? I like that word much better than self-control. <clears throat> Temperance, the ability to use a certain whatever as much as you should and no more. Whatever it is, it doesn't only, appear, doesn't only apply to drink. It can apply to anything. Gratitude. Have you truly been grateful? Have you truly been gracious? Well, you actually know these things to be real. Your heart knows them to be real. Anybody who follows the Lord knows them to be real. Try and explain it to anyone who's never had them. Like an unbeliever who thinks that Matthew 1 and 2, or Genesis 1 and 2 for that matter, is a myth. And explain it to them. That yes, in Christ you can have love. Let me explain to you love. They'll look at you like, what are you talking about? They will not know. It's because none of us will know, actually, unless we go 
and pick up this cross and deny ourselves and follow him. Unless we do that, we're not going to find this life, as he says. If the Magi don't follow that star, they're never going to see him. There are true rewards in following this path, which is the path that Christ blazed ahead of us. And as Hebrews 12 says, denying every encumbrance, right, which is, or laying, Hebrews 12 says laying aside every encumbrance, it's the same as denying yourself. (coughs) And then we find something that we've been longing for all our lives, and I would say in every case, we never even knew that we needed it. We need someone to worship. And this is something so fantastic. I, I, you know, you only hear this from the Word of God. I don't think anybody sitting around thinking in deep thoughts on his own would come up with this. You would only get this from God's Word, I would think. That God has made us in his image and... Only he, and not not just only he, but he is worthy of all honor, praise, and glory. And therefore, we have in us the desire to worship. Now, every single human being has the desire to worship. Now, I looked through the scripture to see a passage that would tell me that, and I didn't really find them. But what I did what I did find is I was looking at all the passages that talk about the worship of God and the honor of God and the uh, homage of uh, honoring God is that everybody will if they don't honor God they're honoring something else even in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 13, where we see the beast come on the scene, which we studied back in 2 Thessalonians, we see this beast comes and the people worship him. It doesn't say that they're forced to worship him. They worship this one. It's amazing. But yet, all through, people have worshipped idols. People long for heroes. We see this. People have worshipped idols from the beginning. People worship other people. People worship themselves. They worship good looks. They worship money. They worship power. These are all idols. And if we don't worship God, who's the only one worthy of worship, something goes terribly wrong in our souls. It's true for everybody. So the opening uh, psalm, Psalm 1, the wicked are not so, and not so like what? Well, the one who meditates on the, on the law day and night, as it says, is like a firmly planted tree who bears fruit even when it's hot out and so on. So this is always bearing fruit. It's a well-watered, firmly planted tree. And therefore, the one who is the meditator on the law knows, it's not like we don't do anything or go anywhere, but the firmly planted tree is the one who says, this is where I need to be and nowhere else. I'm with Christ. I'm worshiping him. I'm, worship, I'm looking in his word. I'm studying his word. I don't need to be anywhere else. In other words, in my heart, I don't need anything else. I don't need anyone else. And when that happens, the eyes of your heart, as Christ said, become clear 
And you see, and you see that in Him and in Christ is the only one that I could ever need. He is the purity of life, of eternal life. He's the only one. And I see that. I don't need to go anywhere else. So there's a temptation. Come worship this over here. You know, as good as that may look, I don't see how it could compare to my Lord. I only need Him. And so I'm the firmly planted tree. But in Psalm 1, which is the intro to the whole Psalms, to 148, Psalm 1 and 2 is the rest of the 148 Psalms. The wicked are not so in Psalm 1-4. They are like chaff. Always, every time, it's chaff. Which the wind drives away. Compared to the firmly rooted tree, the imagery here by the psalmist is very clear. He's... He's making a juxtaposition, a contrast between the planted tree who is prosperous and fruitful to this movement, right? Chap, it's nothing. It's no one wants it. It's worthless, but yet it's blown all over. And when we're worshiping something that's not God, this is what we find. We find that we're not fulfilled. And then people move on to something else. Now, there's very few lifelong pagans who are in the same religion. They, do, they usually jump from one to another to another, or they leave it all together, which is probably the best thing they could do. <coughs> the Magi fall and worship the Lord. He's just a kid, probably a, a one-year-old. Think of you falling down and worshiping a toddler now. Someone who's just learned to walk. I'm sure Christ learned to walk early. He probably one of those who learned to walk at like 10 months or something. But <clears throat> Imagine a group of men bowing down on their knees and worshiping a toddler, a little, not even a toddler yet, right? Then Jesus says this to the Samaritan woman. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. The worshipers will worship. The Father seeks these worshipers. It's the same word that's used of the Magi. It's, it's a common word. It's used like 60 times in the New Testament. Proskini- oh, it means to bow down and worship. Now, getting back to the myth, Karl Marx, great guy, not, um, said this. This is where we get this very common phrase, or had been, uh, that religion is the opiate of the masses. Marx, in as, exactly as he stated it, said, religion is the sigh of the oppressed cre- creature, the heart of the heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. So Marx believed religion to be a myth, a falsehood used to comprehend that which was hard for us to comprehend. Why so much suffering in the world? Well, let's throw in religion. It'll calm us like opium does. And that's how Marx saw it. But let's look at Marx for just a second, and I only have a second. The end goal for a guy like Karl Marx was for all the oppressed, the economically oppressed, 
to finally be not oppressed. So let's say that the goal of Marx and all Marxists in our age have the same goal, that all the oppressed are no longer oppressed, not a one on planet Earth, and everybody has enough, not only enough, but everybody has plenty. So like everybody has a number of few houses, tons of money, comfort, everything that they want handed to them. They have servants. They don't even have to worry about what's in their bank account. Everything is brought to them. Everything is given to them. They can go where they want, vacation where they want. Nobody has to even work if they don't want to. All right. Let's say that happens. Then what? What do people do? Well, there becomes a serious problem here, and something that Marx would have never thought of. And that is the fact that man is a sinner. And if we were, it would last about a, a, a day or maybe two. If all of a sudden, all of those billionaires who are the controligarchs of our world, and they gave up all their money, and all of a sudden everybody had, I don't know, $10 million in their bank account, and they could just they could quit their jobs, buy a vacation home, and just do whatever they wanted. How long would it be before chaos would ensue? Robberies, theft, murder. Like, how long? It would take no time at all. But you see, this, what Marx believed was a myth. What people believe is a myth. The myth is that we can get, actually, the human race to be at peace. Now, and actually what Marx talks about seems almost like heaven, doesn't it? Well, we say, well, in heaven nobody has uh, any needs. Nobody has, everything's handed to you. Kind of is. I mean, who, do you have any needs? There's a big, uh, the Lord talks about his banquet and he says, don't bring anything. I, I've got it all for you. Isaiah 25 and 26. He says, don't bring a thing. I've. Don't bring a dish. I've got it all, right? He says, I've, everything's here for you. I will give it to you without cost. But is heaven like this? Yeah, I mean, in a way it is. But it's not enough. Not for the human race. Not for us. We're created in God's image, and we are therefore created for more than just existing. Like if everybody had all the things that Karl Marx wanted them to have, then everybody would exist and exist well. But it would not be enough for the restless soul. And even not at, even as sinners, but when we are without sin in heaven, if we take this to heaven and say, okay, it's a perfect place, all our needs are met, and there's no more sin, what are we to do? Just exist? Is that the end goal of us, to exist? We find out that it's not. And here, as I started with this, and I meant to end five minutes ago, so sorry. The mending of the broken heart, the unfulfilled desire, the failure to live up to expectations, the sure cure for it all. Go to Revelation chapter 4. we just read this and, and we're done. Revelation 4.8.
And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And a day and a night they do not cease to say. Now, the solution to the broken heart is not being a living creature. One of these guys. These are crazy looking (laughs) creatures. But notice what they do. Night and day they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures gave glory and thank, glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. And the magi give gifts to the child. They open up their treasures and give him gifts. They present gifts. And here we are presenting Christ with a gift, and it's actually the gift that he has given us. These crowns that these 24 elders, whoever these 24 elders are, there's many theories. It doesn't matter to us now. What matters here is that those who worship Christ are giving him, and this is a scene in heaven. This is not on earth. This is in heaven. They say... They are saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Worthy are you. We, just like the Magi, we see him, we worship him, we present to him. And really, we're presenting to him ourselves. Now, do we have to wait until we go to heaven to say, worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power, to give him thanks, to worship him? Mm -mm. We can do it right now, right today. Every day, we can do this. And when we do this, we put all power and glory in his hands. Yes, my heart is broken, but you have a plan. And I worship you for your plan. You see, the dip, you could say, I'm going to put my faith in you for your plan, and that's great. Do, you have to do that. But when you say, I'm going to put my faith in you, and then in my heart, I'm going to worship you for your plan, because you alone are wisdom. You alone are power. You alone are glory. Your plan, your will, that's what I worship, not my life. Your life I worship. Jesus has opened this up for us. Because we are seated with him at the throne of God. So this new creation that we are, the Old Testament saints couldn't do this. We can go to the throne of God any minute. We could do it right now. We will in a second. We go straight to the throne room and say to you, Father, are all glory and honor and power. We live in a world of relative truths. and We have to live out absolute truths. We live in a world that believes that all of this to be a myth. And we have to live it out. You have to live it out. I have to live it out as an absolute truth. And when you worship him, everything that happens to you becomes something that you thank him for. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for let's thank him. Thank you, Father. Thank you for all you do. To you alone is due all power, all worthiness. You are holy. You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. May we give our glory to you, not to ourselves, not to our circumstances, but to you, Father, and you alone. 
we thank you that you gave us our Lord Jesus Christ born into this world to give us this ability to come to you as we are doing right this second and worship you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.